Chapter Fourteen, Part One of the Man with the Black Cord by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mueller and Carl go on a journey. At half past nine that evening, a two-horse carriage stopped a few steps from a side entrance of the northern station, at the corner of an ill-lighted and little-used street. A quiet-appearing slender man with heavy spectacles, long gray beard and gray hair, alighted from the carriage. He wore a light brown cape overcoat and a wide-brimmed soft felt hat. After a short conversation with the driver of the carriage, the gentleman took up his bags himself and carried them into the hall where the ticket offices were. Here he left his luggage with a porter and went to buy his ticket. The office had just been opened and there was a crowd of people, thirty at least, who were pushing their way up to the narrow space in front of the window. The little old gentleman was interested in one person only in this crowd, and that person was Dr. Maximoff. He edged his way up until he stood in the line immediately behind the Russian, and heard the latter ask for two first-class tickets to Grunica. While he was getting his change, the old gentleman noticed that immediately behind him in the line was a very impatient lady. Just as Maximoff left the window, the old gentleman stepped back with a deep bow and let the lady go up ahead of him. She acknowledged the courtesy with a smile, bought her ticket, and hurried off. Then the old gentleman's turn came, and he bought a ticket for Grenica first class. He turned and followed Maximoff, who was leisurely mounting the broad steps that led up to the waiting room and the restaurant of the northern station. The old gentleman and his porter walked up equally leisurely. There were but a few people in the roomy, attractive restaurant hall of the first-class waiting room. Mueller, who now looked like a man nearing seventy, sat down at a table quite near the one at which Maximoff had taken his place and at which George Munzer was already sitting. There was a glass partition between the two tables, and Mueller sat so that he could not be seen by Maximoff. The two men at the other table were talking in French. Easily as he spoke German, Maximoff preferred French, and Karl handled the language very well. This was one of the things which had so pleased the Russian and decided him in favor of the young detective. Their conversation now was quite unimportant, dealing mainly with the supper they had just eaten. Mueller smiled at the ease with which his protégé chatted about indifferent things on the eve of what might prove a hazardous undertaking. He was greatly pleased at his choice of Karl for this work, but he was also pleased with his own disguise for Carl, as he could see, had been quietly making a scrutiny of all the other men in the restaurant, and his eyes had once or twice rested on the old gentleman who sat beyond the glass wall, but there was no sign of recognition in them. When there were but fourteen minutes left before the departure of the night express, Maximoff rose from the table. "'They've probably put our luggage in our compartment already,' he said, "'but you might go and have a look at it. I'll follow you when I have bought some cigarettes.' We have a long night before us, and I don't sleep well on the train. The Russian left the room, but Carl sat motionless for a moment or two, his eyes now openly making a tour of the hall. Why, that's I, asked Mueller, who had risen and come up behind the young man. The latter wheeled around quickly. Oh, I didn't recognize you. I was afraid something might have prevented you from coming with us, he exclaimed with a sigh of undeniable relief. Are you in a corridor car? asked Mueller. Yes, we have a small compartment reserved for us. You'd better go now. I'll follow you and try to get a seat as near you as I can. At all events, I'll be in the same car. Carl went out in the direction towards the trains, and Mueller followed him, 
picking up the porter with his luggage outside the restaurant. A few minutes later, Mueller had secured a seat in the compartment immediately adjoining one on which hung a card, reserved, the compartment into which he had seen Carl disappear. Mueller's compartment was also a small one, with room for only three people altogether. When the train left the station, he was glad to see that he was still alone. He drew the curtains over the two windows that looked out into the corridor, and when the conductor had punched his ticket, he also drew the shade over the lamp on the ceiling. It was a very heavy shade, and the little compartment was now completely dark. The corridor outside was brilliantly lighted. Mueller could easily see Maximoff's face through the crack where the curtains met on the windows. The doctor was leaning against one of the outer windows in the corridor and smoking. He was talking to Carl, who stood so that Mueller could only see his one shoulder. They were not talking loud enough for the listener to understand what they said, but it must have been something pleasant, for Maximoff's face was merry, and both men were laughing heartily. A few moments later, Carl's shoulder disappeared from Mueller's range of vision. The young man must have gone back into the compartment, for Maximoff evidently felt certain that the other was no longer looking at him. How did the old ferret in the dark compartment know this? Something odd that happened just then revealed it to him. Maximoff's face had changed suddenly and remarkably. There was a peculiar, set look to it, although his mouth still smiled and his eyes shone. It was a victorious smile, and the brilliancy of his eyes suited it well. Was this merriment called forth by the conversation just closed? Mueller had not heard the words, so he did not know. But for that fleeting moment, the brightness and the laughter had taken on something that made them terrible, an ugly gleam as of mocking cruelty. Before the old detective had time to know whether he really saw it, or only thought he saw it, Maximoff's face regained its former expression. Carl had returned from the compartment and stood now so that Mueller could see his face also. It was smiling and content. The great train thundered on through the night. The two men left the corridor and went into their compartment to make themselves comfortable for the hours of rest. Mueller followed their example, for he did not intend to stay on watch that night, as he knew it would be quite unnecessary. It was some time, however, before he could lose himself in sleep. Forever and again there arose before his mental vision the picture of the sudden change on Maximoff's handsome, smiling face. It was a change so subtle, so quickly come and so quickly gone, that only a trained eye such as Mueller's, watching this man with intensity, could have seen it. And yet even he asked himself again and again, Did I really see it, or did I mistake? Is it possible that I have at last caught a glimpse, through the weak spot in this man's armor, of the horrors that may lie beneath his charm and fascination? Before Mueller finally fell asleep, he started up once more with a jerk. He had been dozing and had lost the consciousness that he was in a moving train. A sudden swaying of the car aroused him. "'What am I doing here? Why am I on a train?' he asked himself. Then the cloud cleared from his senses, and he remembered where he was and why he was there. "'I don't like this idea of Maximoff going with Carl,' he murmured, "'and still less do I like the plan for them to meet in Osvienchim and finish up their business in this out-of-the-way, obscure little place. There's something decidedly suspicious in that scheme, and that's the reason I'm going along with them.' but there's no reason why I shouldn't sleep quietly tonight. There's no danger for the boy thus far, because this mysterious doctor wants his papers, and he hasn't got them yet. So why not sleep as long as I can? Having thus reasoned himself back into a drowsy frame of mind, Mueller tried his door again to see that it was locked, 
put his head down on the cushion and soon fell fast asleep. He slept so soundly that he did not wake up until the train stopped in Oderberg. He looked at his watch and saw it was three o'clock. From then on he did not permit himself to do more than doze, and heard the names of various stations called out, Petrovich, Jejisa, and Osvienchim. When they got to the last station, Mueller rose from his couch and looked out into the landscape, still indistinct in the grey morning twilight. Only a few isolated points of light showed where the little town lay but against the nebulous horizon rose the outlines of the ruined castle which overlooks the town a great factory which muller remembered from a former journey shone out at the foot of the hill with its rows of lighted windows and this is the place where maximoff intends to wait for karl and pay him off thought muller with a look back at the little town as the train rolled on why doesn't he pay him in vienna i don't understand this thing at all and i don't like it on and on through the brightening twilight through the early gray of a foggy morning, the heavy express thundered, rocking and swaying. Lazy white streaks of mist hung over the many little ponds and lakes, lying with their still waters like uncut jewels between the dark fringe of the forest. Mueller dressed slowly, making sure that the curtains of the corridor windows were carefully drawn. It took him some time to complete his toilet, and he spent considerable care in the combing of the long gray beard which had apparently grown during his drive from Inzersdorf to the northern station in Vienna. He smiled to himself as he saw his own slender figure in the glass, for he had left Mr. Hartman's comfortable curves in his carriage. Long before they reached Guernica, the Russian border station, where the train was timed to arrive at six o'clock, Mueller had completed his disguise as the quiet elderly gentleman. He was the last to leave the train in Guernica. The inspection of baggage and passes of those travellers who were going on into Russia took quite some time, although it went off smoothly enough. Mueller kept at a distance from the two men he was following. He did not need to be near them now, for he knew what the next move was to be. As Karl went past him, in the wake of Maximoff, he utilized a moment of crowding pressure on the part of a group of passengers coming through a doorway and thrust a bit of paper into Mueller's hand. On the paper was written the word, Riga. A meaning glance from the young man's eyes seemed to say that he had heard something of importance which he was anxious to communicate. Karl had indeed heard things which interested him greatly and which he was desirous of talking over with his wise friend and mentor. Shortly after Maximoff and George Munzer had retired into their compartment the evening before, the young man gently reminded his employer that the latter had promised him important details of the work during this first part of the journey. The brightness vanished from the Russian's face at this, and a melancholy gravity took its place. He leaned back in his corner and let his eyes rest in serious, sharp scrutiny on the young man opposite. He did not speak for some time. "'Does it not occur to you that I am paying a very high sum for what appears to be a simple service?' he asked finally. Munzer nodded. "'You spoke of possible complications,' he replied. I judged that you took these into consideration, and therefore I was not surprised at your generosity. The young man made his reply easily with a careless little smile. Maximoff laid down his cigarette and leaned forward. You need not be surprised at it, he continued in a low voice, for I took into consideration that you might have to overcome very great difficulties. That is what we are here for, to overcome great difficulties, answered the young man, thinking to himself that it was not he who could be depended upon, but the quiet little man in the neighboring compartment. But he continued calmly, "'Please, Dr. Maximoff, 
Do not be afraid to tell me everything. I am here to do your bidding. The Russian leaned over, looked at him keenly, and whispered, Are you ready for anything? Munzer answered the gaze with steady eyes, and after a moment's pause replied, Yes, for anything. Maximoff's eyes gleamed. The set look which had given his face the appearance of a mask for a moment vanished. That is good. That is very good. It is a good thing for you, too, he said with a peculiar smile. His words and his smile struck Karl, and he wondered at them, but he did not let the other see it. Tell me what it is you want, he said again, and Maximoff's peculiar smile faded. Listen to me, he began. My name is not Maximoff. I borrowed this name from a relative, who in all probability has been dead many years. I say in all probability, for I do not know for a certainty that the man is dead. Now there are three possible contingencies for this case of ours. The one that will make it easiest for you is that in the city of this man's home they have had no news from him whatever, and will therefore hand you out the papers without any trouble. The difficulty will arise if he should by any possibility have returned to his home, or if a certificate of death has reached there. Will you know how to manage the matter in either of these cases? Munzer paused for a moment as if he was thinking it over. Then he gave the answer that he had been ready at once to give. Everything can be had in Russia for money, and as you are willing to spare no expense— The doctor nodded as if satisfied. Then he said, the tone of his voice as chill as steel, and his eyes shining oddly, For money, yes, or with cunning, or by force— but before the other could wonder at the words, his voice was gentle again, and he continued calmly, quite the amiable companion as before. Of course it goes without saying that you will be provided with sufficient money to buy the documents if necessary. Ah, how true it is that one can never know until life is over into what queer situations one may come. Not so very many years ago I should have been greatly astonished if anyone had told me that it would be necessary for me to steal my cousin's name in order to live a comfortable life undisturbed by the Russian government. Munzer nodded meditatively. Did you borrow his professional title also, or have you a right to it? he asked finally. I am a doctor of medicine in my own right. Sergius and I studied and graduated together at the university in Vienna. Then he went to South Africa and has not been heard of since. I married, became a widower, and settled in Austria. It is eight years now since I had the last news of Sergius. I don't believe he can have any objection to your use of his name, as he is doubtless dead, remarked Munzer, and Maximoff replied eagerly. Yes, don't you think so? Even the most honest man can find himself driven into deceit at times. When I fled from Russia, hounded by the spies of the government, and hid myself in Austria under the cloak of my cousin's name, I never dreamed that I would marry again, never dreamed that my life's happiness would depend on those papers that I want you to get for me papers without which the ceremony cannot take place under the laws of my adopted land. With a sigh, he sank back into his cushions again. I can't see anything wrong in what you are doing, declared Munzer calmly. You do not harm anyone by using this name. You can depend upon me. I will do all that lies in my power, in your interest and in my own, to get you the papers. I feel sure that it can be done. You say that I can get along very well in the places where I have to be, with German or French? Yes, it was not necessary for me to find someone who spoke Russian, answered Maximoff. But you want to ask something else. I can see it in your face. What is it that you still want to know? I merely wanted to ask you why you didn't tell me what you've just told me now when we were together in Inzersdorf. Maximoff made a considerable pause before he answered. 
I feared that if you knew the truth about the matter you might not undertake the job. Once started on the journey, you would not care to break it off and turn back. Munzer felt that the doctor was not telling the truth now, and it made a disagreeable impression upon him, an impression that was not removed by anything that was said further. For Maximoff declared that he was sleepy and made his preparations for rest, rather hurriedly, it seemed, to his companion. He really did fall asleep very soon, into a sleep that was so deep and sound that Carl could have no doubt as to its reality. The young man sat for some time looking at his companion, and it was not the regular deep breathing nor the loosely hanging arms that told him that the man on the other seat was really asleep. It was the expression of his face. Maximoff was dreaming. His soul, untrammeled, went on its own free way through the ether. Through what paths did it wander? Carl drew back into his corner, and young and strong as he was, he shivered as if with a severe chill. The Russian had smiled in his sleep, but the smile that drew his lips apart and distorted the usually agreeable lines of his face was the smile of a fiend incarnate. Do I only think so? thought Carl, shuddering. Is it the wavering light on his face and my own imagination that makes me think so? He could not come to a decision about it, for Maximoff turned over suddenly, and his face was hidden from his companion. It was long before Carl could fall asleep. He did not know the reason of Mueller's interest in the Russian doctor. His patron had told him no more than that they must keep an eye on Maximoff, and before they parted he had reminded him to watch every movement, every expression of the other, and to remember every word of the conversation. The veteran detective had not given his young protégé the faintest hint of his belief, of his suspicion, rather, that Maximoff was the man who had fled before him that night in the greenhouse, and who had followed them in their wanderings over the moor back to the gate in front of the pavilion. And yet Carl in his heart had an inkling of Mueller's suspicion, and of the fact that this suspicion was the reason for their present journey. But he too asked himself why this mysterious and terrible man with the black cord, who now knew for some time that the supposed Hartman was a detective who was on his trail, could have left them so undisturbed, and he too found no answer to the question. The young man sat for hours watching the sleeping Russian. Again and again a shudder ran through his frame when he recalled the mysterious words the other had said, accompanied by a smile that was equally mysterious. The words, that is good, that is very good, that is very good for you also. And more and more did the certainty come to him that he himself would have been in great danger after hearing the other secret, if he had not declared himself ready for whatever might happen. It was some time after midnight before the young man fell into an uneasy slumber. When the train rolled out of the station at Chabinia, he sprang up again and saw Maximoff standing in front of him, smiling cheerily down at him. "'Had a good sleep?' asked the doctor, who was already fully dressed and just about to take a roll of banknotes out of his pocketbook. In spite of the varied experiences of his life, Carl was still too new at his present work not to be surprised at his own changing sensations. At the present moment, he could not understand how, in the stillness of the night on the sleeping train, he could for one moment have imagined that Maximoff and that terrible unknown were one and the same person. How was it possible that these great melancholy eyes, this sympathetic face, so serious and yet so cordial, should belong to such an unscrupulous criminal? It was quite impossible. With a feeling of remorse, the young man pressed the hand the other held out to him. "'We will soon part,' said the doctor with a sigh, 
and when we meet again i hope you will bring to me the papers that i need so greatly the papers upon which the happiness of my life will depend you are young yet munzer your heart beats warm with sympathy as the heart of youth should beat i hope that you really understand what your success in this matter means to a man who has gone further along life's weary pathway than you have and i hope that you will have the courage if need be to force fate and put through your will no matter what difficulties may occur he pressed the young man's hand firmly as he spoke and looked at him with a glance of ardent pleading then straightening himself up he continued in a calm and business-like tone here are four thousand roubles in notes and in this little bag you will find a large sum in gold and silver russian currency i know the conditions into which i am sending you and i know that the money i am giving you will be sufficient i am relying on your intelligence and your discretion and i hope to meet you in less than a week in osvianchim i will not appear to know you in the station in granica it is better that we should not be seen together there at all i will wait on the street outside the railway station and you can wave to me from the train this will show me that you have passed the frontier without trouble in riga you must buy yourself another ticket to wenden your last destination and now good luck to you another warm clasp of the hand then the doctor took his grip and went out into the corridor two or three minutes later the train halted in the frontier station of granica when the luggage and the passports had been examined the passengers who were crossing the border into russia were allowed to enter the waiting train Mueller and Karl were together in a compartment. The latter stood at the window, watching Maximoff, who, plainly visible, was strolling up and down the street. When the train began to move, Karl waved his handkerchief, and Maximoff took off his hat and whirled it around his head two or three times. End of chapter 14, part 1